0: The reason people aren't financially free is they don't know what to do and they don't know where to start. I want you to join Joey and I at the Virtual Inner Circle Live, April the 4th through the 6th, as we share with you the exact answers to those questions. We only do this event one time per year. I don't want you to miss out. Go to wealthwattwattstreet.com forward slash live and enter promo code PODCAST. When you're at this event, you're going to get your investor DNA, you're going to get access to up to six different passive income strategies. So, you know, leaving this event exactly what to do, taking our decades of knowledge so that you can start becoming financially free. Go to WealthWildWallStreet.com forward slash live and enter the promo code podcast. Stagion, as I was listening to our guest today, Robert Pereira talk, it made me realize or discover, if you will, that I need to be spending way more time around operators The people who know how to do things, man. It reminded me just of whenever we interviewed Alex Hermozzi on our podcast, and he was talking about how when he wanted to get in the gym business, what did he do? He went and interviewed the three top gym people out there. And after talking to them, he asked them the question, who would be the three people if you had to refer someone out other than to work with you, who would you tell them to go to? And he was like, this is exactly what we did when we work in the government business. If we wanted to get in a new industry, we would always go find who are the top three people in the industry. We'd ask them every question that we needed to know about what they did, how they did it, why were they excellent? And then we would say, who, if you had to refer out other than yourself, would be the three people you would refer me to. And we would go do the
1: same thing with them. Well, what you're talking about, Russ, is really like the subject matter expert. At the end of the day, You listen to podcasts like this to get mentors, to get people to cast vision and give you the why behind everything. But in order to really turn decades into days, you have to have the subject matter expert giving you the how. And today's subject matter expert is Robert Pereira. And Tribe, if you've been thinking about investing in multifamily, this is your episode. Because he's going to unpack for you the three reasons why he foresees multifamily investments that might fail in the next five years. You're not going to want to miss how having the right debt, being overly optimistic about net growth in rent, and bad operators can really fail your investments. Let's not take any more away from this interview with Robert Pereira.
2: Welcome to
0: the Wealth Without Wall Street podcast.
1: Wealth Without Wall Street Tribe, it is my pleasure to introduce you, Mr. Robert Pereira, to the show. Robert, so glad to have you, my friend.
2: Thank you, Joey and Russ. Uh, Looking forward to an awesome podcast.
0: Yeah, man, you're in for a treat, Tribe, because our guest today, Robert Pereira, is an expert. I'm talking about absolutely passionate dynamic when it comes to everything uh, in the multifamily space, and you're gonna hear that. But Robert, I just gotta, since we're friends, right? We're mastermind members together. I'm just not going to give you softballs. I'm going to come at you today. I want to like, <laughs> I, I, I I, I talk about why multifamily is not going to be so great. Why it's not going to be so rosy over the next five years. Because all I hear is why it is so good. So if I can challenge you, why, if you could think pessimistic with me for just a second, why do you believe, if any, multifamily will struggle in the future?
2: Absolutely. Um, I can give it to you. I, I, you know, and I'm going to lead from a position of saying that I think on the go forward, um, right now, and as we go forward over the next 12 to 18 months, there's going to be some really great deals to be purchased. Um, but I'll tell you why I think multifamily deals are going to suffer, especially the ones that have been bought uh, in the last, call it two years. Um, okay. Three main points. Um, one is revolving, one, one involves debt. Uh, the second one is the projections uh, as far as, uh, income growth. And the third one is, is just poor operations. So first to speak of debt, um, in starting with, with COVID and onward, um, once, um, we, we got this big influx of capital into the country. Um, we, we saw a lot of lenders that were willing to lend on deals that probably shouldn't have gotten the proceeds they got. So, um, you know, there was they were overextending rather than having more equity in the deal, which would, would have put the uh, a smaller loan to value. We've got some lo- uh, loans out there that are really high loan to value, um, you know, from when they when the deal transacted.
1: And hold on, let's just have, I just want to make sure I, I know what you mean, but I just want to make sure people are following us. When you say that, let's just say it's a a,
2: a twenty million dollar deal. A twenty million dollar deal that that probably should have gotten. 12 million of debt, got 16 million of debt. And the equity made up the difference.
1: So they're they're borrowing more than they should have against that asset.
2: Exactly, okay. With, right. and the reason the lender did that it was was, was a, it were very rosy projections on rent growth. So they're like, okay, we're, we're lending you guys more than normal, but we think you guys are going to have an asset you're buying for twenty million that's going to be worth thirty million in in twenty four months. So there was very rosy projections, um, not on all multifamily, but on enough that I think it's going to be a problem, um, especially that in the C class space. Like when I say C class, I mean really workforce housing built in the 50s, 60s, 70s, early 80s, I think we're going to see some real distress there where people were, yeah, just didn't have the right kind of debt that is now expiring, where the lender's like, hey, um, we need to be paid off, which means that if you're still owning that multifamily asset, you need to have a new lender come in and replace that existing lender. That new lender is going to say, well, I know you've lent on the scenario we just mentioned, Joey. We know we lent, the previous guy lent 16 million on a $20 million asset. The asset today, you know, you thought it was going to be worth 30. So when you refi, you'd be fine. It's now still worth 20. It might be worth 18. Mm-hmm. And we're going to lend to you at 10 or 12 million. And then the operator is going to say, well, I don't, well, well, how do we make up the difference? And, and the, the new lender is going to say, I don't care how you make up the difference, but you make up the difference. Go, go out and raise more capital. It's not going to be easy to raise capital for a deal that's underperforming. So a lot of those deals are going to have to be sold. And when they get sold um, in a market that where they're underperforming, the equity is not going to be made whole. So, Robert, are you saying that everybody
0: still, you know, familiar with some of the arms, right? The adjustable rate yeah. mortgages that they did on homes, especially in the early 2000s. That was oh, very, yeah. very common. Are you saying that that's the way most multifamily projects are created? They're not created on like a 15, 20, 30 year fixed rate.
2: Great question, Russ. No, you're you're typically going to you'll be lucky to lock for five years. Um, and you know, in some cases I've got tenure programs, but, um, the reason that multifamily operators, well, one, the debt market isn't set up like it is in residential where you can lock for 30, it's typically five or less. And. Part, part of that is because, um, the debt market in residential is also very forgiving. If you choose to sell your home, buy another home, you pay off the loan, there's no prepayment penalties. With multifamily, the way it's structured, if you, um, you will almost always have prepayment penalties that are involved. So if you finish your business plan in two years and you, you took a five-year loan, you, you might have to make up the, the, uh, the, the uh, interest payments for those remaining three years as part of your sale, and they'll, that'll come out of your sale proceeds. And so sometimes operators will be stuck in a deal because of the debt not maturing for, for another two or three years. So there's a there, it, it's an art more than a science as far as how to plan that debt. Still better to be conservative than than aggressive. And what the reason deals are gonna go bad and south is because people got very aggressive. Um, the lenders, as well as borrowers in the last few years.
0: So so not only are they having mortgages or uh, terms on their mortgage existing debt that are coming due, but because we're in a significantly higher interest rate environment, what is a tip, like t- take me back two years ago whenever you were doing deals, what, were, what was a typical five-year mortgage that you were getting out there as, as compared to what does it look like today? Like how big of a difference is that?
2: If you were doing a bridge loan, um, which is often the type of loan that you're going to get when you're doing a value add, you're you're going to get a, a loan that has in order to get more proceeds, you'll you'll get you'll work with bridge versus agency. Agency is fixed rate debt that doesn't always and typically will not come with a capital expenditure component. So if you're buying an asset for twenty million dollars and you want to spend three million on it to improve it, the bridge lender will actually give you those construction funds in addition to giving you the down payment. Uh, funds. Uh, Fannie and Freddie will not. They'll just give you the the, the down payment fund. So you've got to raise additional capital, which might prove to be the prudent case. But the last couple of years, the bridge market's been very powerful and 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 it's has, has been very comparable in pricing to Fannie and Freddie. That has changed as interest rates have gone up because the bridge market is is always pegged is typically always pegged to sulfur. The, right, hold on
1: hold on one second. I want you to use that example that you were you started with. It's a $20 million asset. And let's say it is a value add. It's something that you want to go in and make improvements to this property to to force the value up and so on and so forth. Um, Give me an example of how that bridge loan would work versus if somebody went in and just did the Fannie or Freddie, the agency debt, as you're mentioning, is more of a fixed rate. Explain it in that case so that we can kind of understand what you're saying.
2: Awesome, so on the $20 million scenario, uh, a bridge lender might have lent you 15 million of down payment proceeds and another three million of capital expenditure proceeds. So if you're buying a deal for 20 million, it needs another three million of improvement money. Um, That means 23 total. The bridge lender would have given you 18 of the 23. You only had to raise five from equity. Fannie and Freddie might have instead of, because it didn't have enough income day one, they're gonna be more conservative Always over, typically over bridge lenders, they might have given you thirteen million out of the twenty million for down payment proceeds and zero capex cap, you know, construction proceeds. So instead of raising five, you have to raise ten. And since the way deals are structured as far as the IRR, if you're raising twice the equity and it's the same exact deal, your IRR is going to be cut in half. So and, and, a and talk about IRR becomes a ten IRR
1: yeah. and talk about then the difference between how those those interest rates and the terms would be on the, the bridge loan versus the the agency debt,
2: yeah. so so while there were very comparable interest rates in the, let's say in the threes and fours two years ago, the between agency and um agency and uh, bridge, today, if you're getting bridge, you're going to be in the sevens and eights. Um agency is still in the fives and low sixes, but it's still lower proceeds. Agency will almost always be lower proceeds, which is fine if you've already raised the income in that asset to support, uh, you know, uh, because if the income goes up, then your proceeds in general will go up because it's all based on how much debt service you can cover. And the debt service coverage is based on how much income the property has.
1: But, But just to clarify one last thing, and I'm just trying to tie it back to why these things can go bad. If you if you started with that bridge loan financing two years ago at in the threes, that was never locked in at three. No, nope. right? It will it will continue to rise as the rates went up. Absolutely. to in the eights
2: right now. Well, well, well you, you might have bought a you might have bought a rate cap, Joey. That might have capped your rate instead of being in the threes. It might have floated up to a five, which is fine. You're still probably able to make things work two points over. But when that rate cap expires, which it typically will two years after you, you initiated the loan, then all bets are off because you've got to either buy a new rate cap, which will be much more expensive than the rate cap you bought when you when you acquired the property, um, or you have to refinance. No matter what, it, it's it's a, a, a balloon situation, right? Gotcha. And the balloon's going well, pop if you don't have the value.
0: But that's the reason I wanted to bring this up, Tribe. I, I, I hate to be negative on anything, right? But I want us to be diligent in our... Our focus, right? Financial freedom is when we have more passive income, we have monthly expenses. But we also have to be looking forward to how do we avoid the expenditures like losing money, right? That that, that puts us where our passive income goes down, yeah. right? And we and we don't we still have the same amount of expenses. So we're getting further away from financial freedom. So if we're in deals, we need to be asking our operators these questions, like what are the um, the rate caps that you have, how long are they in place for? How how well prepared are you um, for the rate increases that may happen? Are you going to be able to sell the deal before the expiration? Like preparing yourself for some of these type of things. So one thing, Robert, one reason you're giving us as the reason why deals may go bad for existing properties is because of rates. What would be another yeah. potential thing that you could think of that would cause deals to potentially be going bad over the next few years?
2: Great question, Russ. So directly correlated to like the debt is the the reason the lenders were lending aggressively is because they saw uh, optimistic rent growth. That rent growth has actually been achieved in assets because we've had rampant inflation. I've seen it. I mean, we own assets where we've owned them for 18 months and the in-place rents are, uh, the rents we're achieving are 30% higher than they were when we bought. And inflation's gone up 30% in the last 18 months, right? So what what I'm getting at is if you've run your assets well, you've actually, multifamily operators have done fine from inflation. It's if you bought poorly or you don't operate well to actually be able to get that rent growth, you're not doing the improvements to the asset. It's not looking any better. You're not improving the safety of the people living there. There could be a myriad of reasons as to why your assets not getting the income bump that you had put into your projections. If it's not, then you're in a position of having you know overly optimistic projections, which even if the debt wasn't an issue, the debt will add to the issue. But in general, when you're when you're trying to create do something in value add, you have to add that value, and that value is you know do the work, and then the income grows. If the income hasn't grown because you were overly optimistic, or or had bad operations. So when I say bad operations, I don't mean not collecting the money. I mean you hope that you've got property manager that can at least collect the rent, But I'm talking about Drilling down into the operations, how well are they actually improving the asset? Are they spending well on the construction of improving units or common area features like uh, a clubhouse, you know, the pool area, pool equipment, furniture, that kind of stuff? That granularity matters to the the renter, right? As as there, and and that's going to be the reason a renter is going to pay, you know, a thousand dollars versus paying eleven $1, hundred, and that hundred dollar delta can make a big difference in your in your business plan
1: okay so before before we get too deep into like the operation side I want to go back to the rent growth um, factor so is any part of that whenever someone's buying an asset they're trying to underwrite it do you feel like some operators have just gotten to the point where they weren't really that closely following the rent growth projections they were just basing it off of inflation instead of, like, hey, this is already undervalued, and there's already room just current market versus are they just kind of throwing it to the wind and saying, well, I mean, inflation is going to take care of this, and they've just kind of inflated no, them. You're, is you're, that you're, what you're, you're
2: saying? Ab- you're absolutely right. Here's why, Joey: multifamily is an asset class is is a fairly fairly boring asset class. It's not a it's not a place people should lose money, right? In my opinion, they're not going to double their money in 12 months, um, and we know that that t- double in 12 months usually doesn't work out anyway, but You know, the the double in five years, which is what we projected ARK, is is a reasonable projection. But what it boils down to is how carefully are you actually evaluating the assets you're buying? What's happened in the last, call it 10 years with crowdfunding, is you have a sponsor um, that is based out of state, that is raising capital from his network out of state. And they're buying, like, you know, someone who lives in California is buying, I live in California. I split my time between California and the Southeast, but I, I reside in California. But I have a team that's headquartered in Atlanta that is on our payroll that I've worked with for years now that are subject matter experts at evaluating rents relative to the comps. And so if you are not, if you don't have that expertise local and using third-party property management who who might be getting your business once you buy as your bellwether, that's a recipe for disaster because they're not going to be as careful as your own people will. So my people will go in and look at every asset that we're looking to make an offer on and really look specifically at the comps, drive the comps, spend time at the properties, talking to the comps management about how well they're leasing up, what what kind of concessions they're offering. When you get to that level of detail, you'd be hard pressed to actually be overly optimistic in your underwriting. And I think that's the problem. If you're, if you're, if instead of having people on the ground, I was trusting the brokers, you know, or, or just third parties to do that kind of work for me. And I was just happy that I'd raised the capital. and We're going to buy something. Then it's like, it's just a, it's a kumbaya thing, right? It's like, okay, let's just hope that it all does well. On the other side, I think, you know, if you really do your homework ahead of time, the odds of a bad outcome, as far as overly optimistic rent growth, um, is, very muted. You're not. You're not going to get that if you're if you're on the ground. Hey, so you, I,
0: I do want to ask, what is a realistic expectation for someone investing in the multi-family space over the next, you know, say five years? I heard you just said, hey, we expect to double. So the rule of seventy-two would tell me that's a little over fourteen yep. percent. Is that what you believe is a realistic expectation then?
2: hundred percent, because I would buy assets at pricing that makes that realistic. So if I was, if, you know, we're not, we're not transacting a ton of deals right now. We haven't, candidly, we've been having to be either off market in our acquisitions or just very choosy, but the deals we've picked um, are gonna exceed 14%. We'll you know, Well, be at 20 plus on a lot of our deals because of careful choosing. So if you're, if you're carefully underwriting, there's enough deal flow for good operators to hit really good numbers for their investors. Um, it, but it boils down to paying the right price for the right asset.
1: If you've listened to our show for any length of time, you've heard us talk about infinite banking and how we were able to use that concept to create over $50,000 a month in passive income. But it's just not that easy to figure out how does this all connect into my own personal system? Stanley, that's why we
0: created the passive income operating system, bro. It shows you how to turn active income into passive income. It makes all the steps come together. If you would like to get access to it as a podcast listener, we've never given this away in public before. Go to what's forward slash P I O S. There was nothing worse than walking into class when you're in school and the teacher saying "Pop quiz day. Why? Because you were unprepared. Are you unprepared though for financial freedom?
1: Don't be. Find out how close you are by taking our 30 second quiz at wealthwithoutwallstreet.com forward slash quiz. So
0: let's talk about while we're still in this point number two of uh, people being maybe over op, uh, overly optimistic about, you know, rent increases. Some of that has to do with supply and demand. I, I've heard out there, I don't, you know, I'm sure you look at this data, the status reason I'm going to ask you this question. I've heard out there that. We have way more demand for homes, and I'm assuming apartments and everything yep. else, housing in general, than we actually have supplies. Why we're we're seeing building everywhere? Like just next to my neighborhood, there, there's a one of those um, investor, you know, go in and uh, buy it, put a renter like they they're going to put the renter in there for you, figure whatever the, yep. the name uh, of it build is.
2: build build for rent, I think yeah
0: B- build to rent yeah exactly yep. Build for rent or whatever. So are, are we seeing that? in the multifamily space, is there a lot of demand for new projects and will that impact the rents for existing properties? Or do you not see that as a harder, less space, whatever? And so these value add properties are going to actually continue to increase in rent value because there's not enough spots. You got
2: more demand than you have supply. Great question, Russ. So if I was to generalize and say nationwide, we are undersupplied in housing. So the average multifamily deal is gonna go up in value over the next five years. I believe that um, the if the prices of homes will, will will rise. I think they'll be higher five years from now than they are today, because we're undersupplied in homes too. You know, I, I was, I've been working in real estate since the, you know, pre great financial crisis. I started in 07. So I saw, you know, we were oversupplied at that time. We stopped building for six years. We never really caught up. So we are undersupplied. But if you're gonna try and pick winners in in multifamily, it, it goes a lot more granular than that. You could have, we own we own a product, Class A product that is in tertiary Atlanta. So it's outside of Atlanta. Our rent growth is up 15% year over year on a lease up. It's called the Blakely. It's a beautiful Class A product, 420 units that we bought for in phases. We bought it for $89 million, good basis price. Um, and I only say that to contrast that with Class A apartments that are in, downtown Atlanta that are currently oversupplied and have had rent drops already happen. So if, I, if we were to say, hey, in the Southeast, can you buy anything that's class A and have it be, a, have a great outcome? That's not true. It really depends on how much supply and demand there is for your asset class. So I'm in a, a location with Blakely that's completely undersupplied where we have corporate housing that you know, they're dying for. We've got people moving out of Metro Atlanta looking for a nice spot with which is suburban and offers a lot of amenities. And so when you are benefiting from that, you're going to have rent growth. If you're oversupplied in your micro market, you you, you can't fight the market. Ultimately, every property manager is going to tell you, Hey, the comps are at this price. How do you expect me to get this? If we have the same product.
1: I love that. Yeah. It's a great point on the fact that just because we're in a national housing shortage, it does not necessarily guarantee rent growth in all areas. So you have to be underwriting the deal from a local and hyper-local kind of yep. um, in indicator. So that's really, really helpful. Well, I don't know if Russ has any more questions about the rent growth, but I would love to talk more about the operators. Like sure. bad operations in general, that's your third point. What, what are some of those key things that you see are going to potentially implode certain projects or keep them from growing like they should.
2: You know, I, I think, uh, when you, when you look at operations, like I, I'm not someone personally who invests in, um, sponsors that don't operate because I feel like there's just another layer that can be compli- complicated. Now I'll, I'll, I'll say that this, in that if the sponsor is very well, if the sponsor and operator have a, have a, a very good working relationship, um, where, where I mean, by sponsor I mean someone bringing capital into the operator, um, then then it's it's more of a symbiotic relationship. If someone's just raising capital for random deals, then you really as an investor there's nothing wrong with going in with that that group, but you need to go one step forward and talk directly to the operator to get an idea of how their operations are you really talk and vet the operations um you know that that's why when sharon when and i work together and raise capital um from sponsor groups we talk directly to the investor we don't just talk to the sponsor who then talks to the investor because we want the investors to know hey you're coming in with the group but you're you have direct access to arc and we will tell you how the the asset that you're investing in, what we plan for it, how how well capitalized we are on it, how well operationally we are supporting that asset, because um, it, it's it's all about focus. To go one step further on on ops, uh, Joey, I would I would ask the the operator that you're you're working with, how deep is your bench? Because a good operator can become a bad operator if they're spread too thin. You know, you got we at Arc we have currently we have um, two people in our operations department. And we have four assets that we directly operate. As we scale, we, we are we are actually, over, we have more manpower than we need. And I'm happy to pay that personally, because that just is, is a way to make sure we're protected and have really, really good operations. I will always overinvest in operations directly from Sharana myself. That doesn't come from, the, the, the there's no cost to the investor on that. We bear that cost as general partners. Willingly, because that's how we protect our investment and also protect our investors. So when I look at operations, it's like making sure that there's more than enough eyes on your individual investment, and uh, making sure that that they continue to grow responsibly. And just because they're buying new stuff as an operator doesn't mean that they're not paying just as much attention to what they currently own. So do you
0: see that like that's one reasons why deals potentially may be going bad in the future? Is that one they they, they got into deals with um, rates that were adjusting, and now they're adjusting at a significantly higher rate. Maybe uh, the property has maybe gone down in value because maybe they couldn't do the construction because of all the lumber prices, right? As we last couple of years, it got expensive. I would imagine there's people that went in with the idea of, I'm going to do value add in 2019, and then in 2020, everything halted. and They said, okay, we can't do anything. And then all of a sudden, prices of lumber went up for a year. Everybody stopped. Then rates for everything went up, and they're like, oops, can't do that. Now they're yeah. sitting there. That's an issue. Maybe that's hitting them from the um, the rent growth standpoint. But now, as they're operating the project, maybe they went in there saying, hey, we don't need as much in operations because we're going to get out of this deal in two to three years and they didn't get out for whatever reason. Now, that, yeah. now they're trying to expand. Other than those three issues, any other things you can think of? Because I, I guess I just want to continue to inform our audience, right? One of our biggest things is help people become better investors. And yeah. I think the more we understand about how these deals work, and most of us at some level have either already invested in multifamily or probably will, because it's the it's the asset class that is the easiest to see and understand Yep. And it's real estate. We all get that part. So yep. what else are we missing that we need to make sure the person listening to this as they're driving down the road knows that they can be a better investor, Robert?
2: Great question, Russ. Um, you know, a, a good question to an operator that you're vetting to, look to make an investment in uh, is, have you done this before? And they'll say, yeah, I've, I've bought other multifamily deals. It's like, no, no. Have specifically like for instance the one we're buying in tuscaloosa um the previous owner who's who's actually staying on as, as part of our limited partnership group um he took the property that was in the same property built in 1980 he bought it five years ago took it down to the studs he's local to tuscaloosa and he's his background's in construction he um turned a, a, a rent roll that wasn't it was it was actually a, a rough pocket. He, he, you know, basically evicted everybody along the way as the leases were coming up, redid the complex. It looks like it was built in the last three years. It's beautiful. It is, it's now got a rent roll that is is very, and when I say rent roll, I mean the, the tenant base is um, young professionals. And so you've got, he's completely turned things around. As we go in, our value add is that he's not done the greatest job with operations in that he doesn't have onsite management He he's actually managed it himself with an assistant and so we, we felt like he left a lot of meat on the bone by not having that, that, that those operations as well as certain things like he doesn't have a dog park he doesn't have a beer garden like little yuppie features that people like and that we know based on the comps that we can achieve a couple hundred dollars more in rent growth than he's achieved because of that by comparison, Russ, if I told you I was gonna buy a apartment complex in Tuscaloosa, that when I was gonna take things down to the studs, meaning when I say down to the studs, I mean literally, you know, reconstruct the apartment complex and then build it up. And I wanted you to invest in that. And I hadn't done that before, don't touch me. it's as simple as that. It's like what well, you know, your money's safest in the bank, right? So it's like, okay, what have you done before in this exact asset class? And and people say, okay, well, have you exited it? In some cases, people may not have sold. But in, in all the assets that ARK owns, I can walk you through the where we are, where we bought, where the value is currently, where we've taken the income. So you can see how we performed. And so you just kind of invest in stuff that's similar to what we've already done, because we're less likely to screw that up.
1: Well, that's a great point, because trust is not always based off of just the person. It's based no. on the capability of whatever the business plan is, right? So. To your point, the, those are... There's multiple ways to take down a multifamily asset. And if the business plan is not something that's been achieved before by that person, you're really throwing, you're really rolling the dice, even though it's the same person that's maybe had success in the same asset class. It's just a different
2: approach. 100%. 100%. Joey.
1: So that's a great, great point.
2: That's why at ARC, we're very focused on the Southeast. I have, I've had investors of mine that have said, hey, I, you know, I, I had one investor who's got a lot of money with us. He's like, hey, I own a parcel of land in Oregon and, you know, I have a hotel next to it. And and he's an older gentleman. He's like, I he, he was talking to me at lunch and he's like, um, and he's got, multi-seven figures with us and and, I, and he's like hey would you guys buy he goes i know you have a construction background robert why don't you build a multifamily complex on there in oregon this is a year ago and i said i said to him i said with, do, with all due respect because you're, you're a valued investor i have no interest in that project i'm based in the southeast we buy stuff right now predominantly in, in, in uh, georgia and alabama um and nothing i'm doing is ground up construction so I, I'm, I'm not interested at all. And he said, you know, that was a trick question. I, I, he goes, if you told me that you were going to do that, I wasn't going to invest in your next project. <laughs> you were scatterbrained. He goes, you gave me the right answer. Because he goes, you're not after every dollar, you're after the right dollars.
1: I, I didn't know it's important. I, I want to ask one more deeper question that I didn't intend to, but it, the more we're talking, it's reminding me of something. Our tribe, as you know, is all about building passive income today. Totally. And... There's so many different ways to take down a multifamily asset. And there's different business plans that have to do with that. So walk me through, if someone says, man, I've got a couple hundred thousand dollars and I want to get my passive income to exceed my monthly expenses today. I don't want to wait five years to double my money. I don't want to, just to double the cash. I want to create the cash flow Walk me through what is the business plan I should be looking for with an operator.
2: Great question. So we have three ways that you can invest with ARC, um, and I'll use that as a platform. There's Class A and Class B equity offered on most of our deals. Class A is about twenty percent of the total equity offering. It'll offer. It'll typically be nine or ten percent paid current, um, and but with no equity upside. So you're going to get cash flow. And it's coming from operations, right? There's no funny business. It's all based. That's why it's only a small portion of the total equity base. We want to make sure that there's enough cash flow in those assets day one to pay that. And so an investor will get nine or ten percent paid quarterly from the time we buy the asset, and that's a cash flow stream that works really well, especially with those who are on who are retirees and they just want to make sure they they're not so worried about growth because you know our growth model is to have, try and hit a two x return in five years, which means we're, we're modeling sixteen to twenty percent a year in the growth model. The non-growth model, it's a nine or ten percent paid current um, for the time that we 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 own the asset. That's class A. Class B is one where you'll get smaller cash flow from day one because you're you're sitting behind class A. You might get one or two percent of cash flow in year one. It goes up a couple of points every year. So if we hold an asset five years and you did a two year one, two percent, year two, four percent, six, eight, and ten. That would be a realistic expectation of cash flow growth if we held an asset five years. But you are getting the equity upside that we share with the you share with the general partnership. So your overall return, if you invested a couple hundred thousand on a five year deal, the Class A investor is going to get um, you know at most a hundred thousand dollars of, of of money. The Class B investor could get two hundred thousand or more of of growth in that five years.
1: So so you're just breaking this down, Tribe. If you're mostly after cash flow today, there's the strategy of being this class A investor that Robert's talking about, where it's just it's just I'm getting monthly, the highest amount, or excuse me, quarterly, the highest amount of distribution on that money. And, but I don't have any way to gain on the sale of that property. So if they, if they double the value of the property in that next five years, I don't get any of that because I've chosen to trade that for monthly, or excuse me, quarterly distributions at the highest interest or highest rate possible Yep. But if I want a smaller monthly or quarterly distribution and then the upside, then there's an option for that as well. but the, the the point I want to make is not necessarily Robert's deals and specific to that, but these are questions that if you're going to invest for cash flow for financial freedom, you need to know what those options are. You don't just need to assume, oh, I like the operator, I like the property and I'm going to invest, it needs to also align with who you are as an investor and what your ultimate goals are. And so thank you for breaking that down, Robert. I think that's super valuable for people to understand.
2: And we do have investors that do both, Joey, where they might put $200,000 in with us. They'll put a hundred in a class A, a hundred in a class B, and they're going to blend up. And therefore they're getting the cash flow, but they're also getting the upside. And then we also have, have some, you know, from time to time, we have debt instruments as well.
0: Robert, this is amazing. Thank you for coming in and just drilling down into the the nitty gritty because I think this is what helps people win. Um, if somebody wanted to connect with you, where would you tell them to go? I uh,
2: think go to our website, um, ARCMF.com. Um, they can also hit me up directly via email. I'm Robert, R-O-B-E-R-T at ARCMF.com. Uh, and then we are, like I said, we are working with, uh, with Russ and Joey, to bring a uh, upcoming deal, uh, ARC deal uh, to Wealth Without Wall Street. And so they can also come in directly with you guys and and, and let you know that they have an interest in um, a future offering that we have. And then, and then when we put together something together in uh, probably second half of this year, they can participate in that uh, and look to come on board if it's fit. For us, it's about education, candidly, just like you guys. If someone comes in a year from now, two years from now versus right now, it makes no difference to us.
0: love that. Thank you so much, man. Really appreciate you, Tribe. Take action, right? Like, do the research, ask the right questions. Um, If this is something that you're interested in, follow up with Robert. We'll make sure all the links are in the show notes. Um, But also share this with somebody else. The way people learn, the way you get better is being around people who are making you better, right? So hopefully you're already in our community. If not, go to wealthwattwattstreet.com forward slash community and join. But also, bring others in there with you. You can hit the invite button inside your app and connect with people and say, Hey, come in here. This is where we're talking about how to build passive income that exceeds our monthly expenses. This is how we're rubbing shoulders with the Robert Perez of the world, who are the people that we want to know more about and what they're doing so that we can be more like them, right? The the better you are, the more people you have that are where you want to be, the more likely that's where you will get to. So please share this. Uh, with with other people. Robert, again, thank you for being on. Uh, As always, thank you for listening. Have an amazing day.
2: This has been the Wealth Without Wall Street podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show to break free of the Wall Street mindset and begin building wealth on your own terms in places you understand so that your wealth will never run dry. See you next
0: episode.